Well, good morning, Gateway family, and Merry Christmas to you. If you want to be making your way to your seats, we are so thankful to gather again this morning after celebrating the birth of Christ last night. I'm thankful that we get to regather again this morning. Just a quick reminder about this morning, there is no kids' worship during the sermon today. I think you parents already know that. There is child care birth to age three, so we do have child care up to three-year-olds, but obviously we got more of the younger kids with us. So parents, if your kids would like something special to do this morning, right outside the office door or these doors to the office hallway in the preschool, there's activity, and Jennifer's right over there, there's activity packs for your kids. So if your kids would like to color or draw this morning, there's activity packs for them. There's also candy canes for your kids if they need a little extra sugar on this Christmas morning. You're welcome to getting them candy canes or activity packs there right as you go to the office hallway. We are so glad that you're here on this beautiful Christmas morning. Just one quick reminder for us before we start the service today is with it being a holiday week between Christmas and New Year's, we're on a different holiday schedule. You can find the details on our website at gatewaybaptist.com. What that means is there's no afternoon or evening activities here on campus today. There's no activities on campus all this week. The church office is closed. The campus is shut down this week. There's no midweek Bible studies, nothing going on this week. And next Sunday morning will be like today with it being New Year's Day. We will gather to celebrate the Lord together on New Year's Day, but there will just be the worship service. There's no small groups next Sunday morning. There'll be no afternoon activities next Sunday for New Year's Day. So we'll just gather at 1030 next week to worship the Lord together again. As we kick off our Christmas Day worship celebration, I want to invite Mike Presley, one of our deacons, and his family to come up. They're going to light the final Advent candle for this season, the Christ candle, this morning. We prepare our hearts to sing to the Lord and worship Him today. Good morning. As we uh, light the Christ candle on this Christmas morning, our uh, scripture reading will be from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth." Adore him. Oh, come, let us. 
And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto uh, to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Father, the words on earth peace among those with whom you are pleased remind us that today as we celebrate Christmas, Christ has brought us peace. We are no longer at enmity and conflict with you. We who were once children of wrath, your wrath, but are now in Christ have been redeemed and set free from the bondage of sin that kept us captive to our guilt and shame and our fear of death. But now in Christ, those who are in him and know him and love him have experienced a peace that passes all understanding. Lord, thank you for the gift of peace on this Christmas day. And my prayer, Lord, that those in this room, all of those in this room, would know your peace experientially, that the truth of the gospel would fill our hearts and our minds, that we would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Lord, what a great and glorious reality today as we worship our risen Savior, the one who came to earth and dwelt among men and then lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserve. Father, thank you for this Christmas day. Father, I want to lift up to you our missionaries, particularly those who are serving in the 1040 window. Think of brothers and sisters who are serving in areas like Pakistan and India, Cambodia and Laos and China. In the Middle East, Lord, I I pray for them today as they celebrate this season and as they look around the many who are still in bondage to sin and darkness. I pray, Lord, that the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ would shine brightly today through our missionaries and that, Lord, they would have opportunities to share the love of Christ. And we pray, Father, that the gospel would go forth and do its work. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are suffering. There are brothers and sisters who are indigenous to the nations who are persecuted because of their love for you. And, Lord, we are reminded that Great is their reward. And so, Lord, I pray that today that you would be near to them and that they also would know that peace that passes all understanding. Father, thank you that Christmas Day falls on what we call the Lord's Day, Resurrection Day, how appropriate that is. And I thank you for all who have come this morning to worship you. And I pray this morning, Lord, as the word of God is proclaimed, that you would open our eyes and our ears this morning to your word. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would take its truths and allow us this morning to once again to see the beauty and the glory of you, our Lord and our Savior. Lord, 
there's gifts that have been given this morning. There's gifts that will be given this day. And, but nothing at all pales in comparison to the gift that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, I pray that this morning we would rejoice in that and that, Lord, you would get all the glory. We thank you for this time. We pray for Grady now as he comes. Bless him and use him. And, Lord, may we see wonderful things from your truth this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thanks, Rick. We give Merry Christmas, everybody. First of all, a quick word to the parents. I know you have more kids sitting with you than normal. Please do not stress on this Christmas day if your kids make noise. It is the sign of life in the church, and God has blessed us with so many young kids in this church. Please do not feel stressed. You're not bothering anyone around you. Enjoy worshiping as a family. Please relax and enjoy studying God's word even with your young kids around. Well, first I want you to find 1 Timothy chapter 1 in your copy of God's Word, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Yes, we're going to pause our study of 1 Peter on this Christmas Sunday morning. And I want to think about what we are celebrating in the awe and wonder of it. So as you're finding 1 Timothy 1, I want to ask you this morning, friends, when you think of Christmas in your soul, not what parties have you been to and what are your traditions, but what happens in your soul when you think about Christmas. And in particular, I want to ask you, do you feel awe and wonder when you think about the Christmas season? Do you feel awe and wonder this time of year? Paul Tripp, who's a biblical counselor, I really enjoy reading and listening to. He says, humans are hardwired for all. Let that sink in. Humans are hardwired for all. We are created by God to desire to be in awe and wonder of things. He says, whether it's the Grand Canyon, a beautiful work of art, or the birth of a baby, and I'd add the Christmas season too, we love to be amazed. We love to be amazed because we're hardwired for all. He's spot on with that. Our hearts long to be in awe of things. And the Christmas season gives us so many reminders of what we should be in awe of, what we should be marveling at. Yet if you're like me, it's easy to miss what we should be marveling at and get focused on the things instead of the one that those things point to. Paul Tripp goes on and says this. He says, I'm more aware than ever that I have a fickle and a wandering heart. I am more aware than ever I have a fickle and a wandering heart. He says, I wish I could say that every moment I enjoy some created thing, it initiates in me a deeper worship of the creator, but it does not. Evidence in my life betrays that I give my heart to the worship of the thing that has been made rather than the one who made it. The evidence in my life is I give my heart to worship the thing that has been made rather than the one who made it. And that's so true for us, I think, in the Christmas season. We can have fickle and wandering hearts and miss what this season is pointing us to, a deeper worship of the creator. It's easy for us to love the things of the season as good as they are and miss the one that they are pointing us to. So back to my question is, are we experiencing awe and wonder this Christmas season? This morning, I want to encourage us from God's word to remember, to meditate and think on what most should give us a sense of awe and wonder. And to do that, I want to find 1 Timothy chapter 1. Yes, these verses are not your typical Christmas verses, but they do remind us of Christmas. They even reference what we celebrate at Christmas here but these are amazing verses to help us rediscover awe and wonder at what our hearts should be most excited about. So as you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, you're looking for what truths here should stir my heart to feel awe and wonder. What are the truths here that should cause our affections towards the Lord, the Lord to be stirred? So 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 15 to 17. Can I ask you to stand, please? 
in honor of the reading of the Word of God. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, and we will have the words on the screen. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Two, the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful on this Christmas morning we can gather and read your word together and pray to you because we are united in Christ because of what Christ has done. I pray this morning you'd use your word to open our eyes and be reminded of the glorious truths that we are celebrating. That you use it to stir within us all at who you are, all at what you've done, a sense of wonder that you have chosen us. And Lord, that we will worship you in response for your glorious truths. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So here's the, the truth I want you to see from 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll unpack it then after this, but here's the main idea. Christmas reminds us of the wonder that an all-glorious God chose to save wretched sinners like us. The message of Christmas is the wonder that an all-glorious God chose to save wretched sinners like us. This is a simple truth that even the youngest child can understand, but it is a life-altering truth that should instill in us awe and wonder that God has put his affections on us. This truth reminds us of who God is. It reminds us of who we are. It reminds us of why Christ came and what he came to do. Christmas reminds us of the wonder that an all-glorious God chose to save wretched sinners like me and like you. So let's unpack that, but let's start with this truth of who God is. If we want to have awe and wonder, it starts with understanding the nature of God. Now, before we jump into it in this text, I love how John summarizes the Christmas message. In John chapter 1, verse 14, you already heard part of John's gospel read earlier, but here's the Christmas story in John. In the word, this Jesus became flesh and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his, notice this, we've seen his glory the glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He sums up the nature of Jesus by saying, we have seen his glory. Friends, when you see glory in Scripture, the word literally means brightness. Glory is the brightness around the presence of God, but it's used in the Bible to refer to the sum of all that God is. His greatness, his majesty, his sovereignty, his beauty, everything that God is is summed up in this word, his glory. And that's what Paul brings out in our text today. Go back to verse 17 of our text today. He says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What Paul is doing, he's praying that God will receive honor and glory. So a quick clarification, if you've been around Gateway, you've heard me say this before. When we talk about God being glorified or God receiving glory, this is not adding to his glory. God is fully glorious all the time. He's fully great all the time. When we talk about glorifying God, it's recognizing his glory that's there. It's honoring him for his glory that's theirs, being in awe of his glory and worshiping him for how glorious he is. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here in verse 17. He's so in awe of who God is. He is worshiping God for being a glorious God. And notice how he describes God here. These are the, some of the attributes, the characteristics of God that he is in absolute awe of and he's praising God for. These are things we should be in awe of when we think about. We get to know this God. Look at the description in verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. There are five descriptions of God here 
And I want you to see these because these should stir our hearts that we get to know this God. Number one, he's called the king. He's the king. That means he's a sovereign ruler over everything. God is in control of all things. He's a sovereign ruler. Why? Because he made it. We heard John 1 earlier, but back to John chapter 1, verse 1, at the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word. This is Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now notice verse 3. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. That he is the one who made it all, therefore he is the sovereign ruler over it all. There's a guy back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, named Abraham Kuyper. He was a rare breed because he was a prime minister of a country who was also a theologian. So somehow politics actually blended in with a the theology there for him. But Abraham Kuyper said this, There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. He's the maker of it all. He's the sovereign king over it all. Therefore, he can cry out mine over everything in all the universe because it belongs to him. He is the sovereign ruling king. So back to verse 17, to the king, the king who created everything, the king who rules over it all. But friends, that means something very personal for you and for me. The fact that God is king is not just some random truth for us. If we really believe that Jesus is the king, that means he's ruling over everything, including our lives. That means we are not here by chance or by mistake. We are here by his good plan. And everything we're going through, even the hardships that we face, are part of his good plan. It's all under his control. He is a sovereign, ruling king. But unlike earthly kings, he's very different. Notice the next phrase in verse 17. He's the king of the ages. Some of your translations say he's the king eternal. Eternal means he has no beginning or no end. So if you want your mind to hurt a little bit on this Christmas day when you lay down tonight, try to think about God never having a beginning. Try to think about the fact that, it was a, that before there was even time, there was God. He has no beginning, has no end. He's outside of time. He, that means that time does not change him. He's not fickle like us. He does not change like us. He is the eternal one. And so when the eternal one promises that we can be with him forever, we can trust him in that and know that eternity awaits us as well, which also means, friends, the trials and struggles we walk through in this life are very temporary. Eternity awaits. He's the king of the ages. He's the king eternal. But notice the next word here. He's the king who's immortal. Now, the better, Greek, the better word from this in the Greek would be the English word incorruptible. The word here is something that does not break down, that does not decay that does not diminish, which makes God different than everything else in all creation, right? Because everything else we have decays and diminishes. So kids, those amazing Christmas gifts you opened yesterday or today, they're diminishing. They will break one day. They'll quit working one day. They'll fall apart one day, right? The new stuff that we got, that new piece of technology, it will decay. It will diminish. Our cars will break. Our houses will break. Some of you are dealing with broken pipes and water in your houses. Everything decays except for God. Even our bodies will break down, but nothing about God will diminish. That means his nature will never decline. That means his glory will never diminish. And that means God will never make his first mistake. There will never be a first time that God goes, oops, I didn't see that coming. Or oops, I shouldn't have done that. God will never make his first mistake. He's incorruptible. That means since we can trust him in absolutely everything. He will never lead us astray. He will never break a promise. He will never fail us. He is the king. He's the eternal king. He's the incorruptible king. The fourth word here back in verse 17, he is the invisible king. He is fundamentally different than us. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are spirits. They are invisible, which he brings out in chapter 6, verse 16. If you look ahead a little bit there, who alone has immortality? 
who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That God is a spirit. But when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, he took on human flesh. The second person, the triune God, took on human flesh and could be seen. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 9, that he's talking to Philip here. He says, have I been with you so long you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So the second person, the invisible God, became visible and still has a resurrection body today, just as we will one day. Now, how does this impact us, friends? The fact that God is invisible, that he's a spirit, reminds us that he is omnipresent. He is everywhere. John Stott, who's a great theologian, said this means that he is beyond the limits of every horizon. This means that God is beyond the limits of every horizon. There is nowhere we can go to get away from God. No matter what we face, what we go through, God is always there. He's a spirit and his presence is always with us. He's the king. He's eternal. He's incorruptible. He's invisible, but yet near the last one, verse 17, he is the only God. He's incomparable. There's no one like him. There's no other true gods. He has no competitors. No one can stop his will. What he's promised to do in world history, he will do. And what he's promised to do for you, he will do. We can trust him. We can hope in him. He is the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. And he is to receive honor and glory forever and ever. That's where the problem comes in for us. Like Paul said, Paul Tripp said, we're fickle. We have wandering hearts. And so instead of worshiping this amazing one true God, we worship so many created things. Instead of trusting in this one true God, we trust in so many other things. Instead of hoping in him, we hope in so many other things. So the painful truth of Christmas is not just that there's an all-glorious God, but that we've greatly sinned against him, that we've greatly sinned against this all-glorious God. Go back to verse 15 here. Here's where the, we see the Christmas story in this text. But, our, but this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. This is Christmas. The second person of the eternal God entered into the human experience, was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. And why did he come? He came into the world, it says, to save sinners. Like I said last night, he didn't come into the world because he missed us. He didn't come into the world because we're good people. He didn't come into the world because we're so amazing. He came into the world because we are awful sinners. Notice the choice of words here Paul has in verse 15. He's saying it's trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners. To sin means to miss the mark. To sin means to come up short of God's standard. And what is God's standard? Perfectly fulfilling the law, all of it. The king has given a standard and we've all broken it. But the sin problem, friends, is not just in our actions. The sin problem goes all the way deep into our heart. John Piper says it well. He says, sin is a mindset that prefers other things more than God. Sin is a mindset that prefers other things more than God. Instead of loving God, we love the things he's made. Instead of loving God, we love ourselves. Sin is a mindset that prefers other things more than God. He goes on, therefore, sin belittles God. Sin demeans God. Sin is rebellion against God. And friends, that describes every single one of us. We love other things more than God. But notice how this great apostle Paul applies this truth to himself. Verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He applies this truth of our sin problem to himself here. Now, some people think, okay, well, yeah, I see why he says I'm the foremost. He was a persecutor of the church. He hated Jesus. He tried to kill Jesus' apostles. 
But notice he didn't say this past tense. He didn't say, I was the foremost. Notice his word here. I am, present tense, the foremost. The more that Paul knew God, the more he saw his sinfulness in his heart for what it is. Again, I love how theologian John Stott says this in explaining this verse. He says, Paul had not investigated the sinful and criminal records of all the inhabitants of the world, carefully comparing himself with them all, and concluded that he was worse than them all. The truth is, rather, when we are convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit, an immediate result is that we give up all such comparisons. Paul didn't look around the world and go, okay, they haven't done that, but I've done this. No, he says, when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of us, an immediate result is we give up all such comparisons. Friends, some of you may need to hear that today because our standard is not one another. Our standard is Christ. He goes on to say, Paul was so vividly aware of his own sin that he could not conceive that anybody could be worse. This is the language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. This is the language of every sinner, even today, whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. Friends, the question for us on this Christmas morning is, do we view our sinfulness the same way that Paul viewed his sinfulness? Not, well, at least I'm not like those people, but to see ourselves as the worst of sinners. There's an old English word that's kind of fallen out of usage today, but I think is so appropriate. It's the English term wretch. We are wretched sinners. Do we really grasp that we are wretched sinners? And that's part of the truth of the Christmas story. Christ came in the world because we are wretched sinners, and there was no other hope of us being restored to God. And that's the last part of this glorious truth of this text for us, that Christ chose to come to rescue us from our sin, that Christ chose to come to rescue us from our sin. Again, notice verse 15. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He left the glory of heaven. He left the praises of the angels to be born in animals with animal smells all around him. Why would he humble himself in this way? To save us, to rescue us. He did it to fulfill the law that we break every day. He did it so he could go to the cross and be the sacrifice to take the wrath of a holy God that should have been poured out on us. I love how Paul explains it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 8. In Philippians 2, he says, Who, though he was in the form of God, this time about Christ, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But verse 7, But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And in verse 8, Being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did all of that to save sinners, to save me, to save you. And so instead of us getting the wrath we deserve, notice what we get. Go back to verse 16. As Paul reflects on all this, he says, but I received mercy. Mercy, friends, is not getting what we deserve. Paul's saying, because Christ came, because he came to die to save me, I now have mercy. I don't get the judgment of God that I deserve. I don't ever have to fear facing the wrath of God. Christ has taken it for me. But he gets more than just mercy. Go back to verse 14, one verse above our text for today. I love this. He says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He also gets grace. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. And notice how Paul says it overflowed to him. The image of a cup pouring over. He had God's grace, but an overflowing grace. This is what you see in John's gospel. He says, he received grace upon grace. Paul describes it here as overflowing grace. Now, what type of grace are we talking about? Grace is getting what we do not deserve. When we talk about grace in Scripture, there's a saving grace that we get. 
where God turns our hearts to him, to love him, where God changes our desires and our affections towards him, and he saves us, and he gives us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. When we see grace in Scripture, we must not stop there, because in Scripture, grace is also a transforming grace that makes us more like Christ, where God creates in us practical holiness, personal holiness to become more and more like Christ. He gives us an overflowing saving grace, and he gives us an overflowing transforming grace as well. Christ came into the world to save us by giving us overflowing mercy, by giving us overflowing grace that not only saves us, but that changes us. And friends, the reality is God did not have to do this. God is holy. He is just. He is righteous. And he would have been perfectly holy and just and righteous to condemn every person who's ever lived on earth to hell because we've all sinned against him. Because every person on the planet has loved other things more than God. He would have been right and just to condemn every person to hell, every one of us, because of our magnitude of our sins against him. But instead, he chose to come be born of a virgin, to be born in a manger in Bethlehem, to live a perfect life, to fulfill the law we break every single day, every hour of the day. He fulfilled it perfectly so he could go to that cross, humble himself and become obedient to the point of death, to take the wrath in a moment that would take us an eternity to pay for, so that instead of wrath, we get overflowing mercy and we get overflowing grace. Christmas reminds us of the wonder that an all-glorious God chose to save wretched sinners like us. Now that raises an important question for us, friends. Do you really believe he's done that for you? It's not just some nice truth out there, but for you personally, do you believe Christ came as an all-glorious God to save a wretched sinner like you? Go to verse 15 here. Notice how Paul begins this. This saying is trustworthy. Okay, it's true what he's saying, and it's deserving of, notice his full acceptance. On this Christmas morning, this is my question for you and for myself have I fully accepted this truth? This truth that God is glorious, that God is immortal, invisible. He is the only God. He's the king of the ages. Have I really accepted it? Have I really accepted the truth that I am a wretched sinner? That Jesus didn't come just to polish off some rust on me, but Jesus came because at my core, I'm a sinner who has offended God. Have I really accepted and fully accepted the truth that Jesus is coming to not just give me mercy so I can be with him, but to give me transforming grace to make me more like Christ. Have you, friends, fully accepted this truth of who Christ is and what he's done for you and who you are? So how do you know if you fully accepted? This saying here deserves full acceptance. How do you know if you fully accepted it? There's an intellectual part of that. You've heard it. You've heard it this morning. You've probably heard it many other times before. So do you believe these truths are true, that Jesus is God, that he's holy and perfect, and he was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect life, and he died on a cross to be your substitute? Do you believe he atoned for your sins? Do you believe those truths? But to fully accept it takes more than intellectual knowledge of that. Demons have intellectual knowledge of these things, but it's not saving faith. It's not full acceptance. Why? Because full acceptance is not just intellect. There's an emotional part of this. A full acceptance is you grow to love the person of Christ. You grow to love God. You find affections for God and longings for God that you never have. Friends, if you don't have affections and longings for God, there's no saving faith here. Saving faith is not intellectual only. It is in a heart that begins to love God. But even more, how do you know if we fully accepted it? Because we see transforming grace. If there's saving grace in our life, it's always accompanied with transforming grace. God does not save us to leave us in our sin. He saves us so that we become more like Christ, so our lives bring him honor and glory. So back to verse 15 this morning. 
This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Can you say, I fully accept that Christ came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost? Friends, the reality is there may be some here who have not fully accepted it. You may have heard the stories, you may have the knowledge of it, but your heart does not beat with affections for God. You do not see transforming grace as breaking the power of sin in your life. And whether you're a child in the room who's heard this before but has not believed in an adult, my challenge for you, my plea with you on this Christmas day is don't let today pass without giving your heart to Christ. To see him for who he is, to realize your sinfulness, and to cry out to him for that overflowing mercy and grace that you need to know God. But for those of you who know God, you know these truths, you love these truths, but more than that, you love the person of Christ. You see his grace not only saving, you see his grace transforming you, it is very possible to lose the sense of awe and wonder of that. It's possible for us to get so familiar with these truths that we're celebrating that we've missed the wonder of it all and to take for granted what we have. Friends, this morning, I want to challenge you on this Christmas day to not lose the wonder of the fact that the king of the ages who's immortal, invisible, the only God has chose to set his affections on you. He chose to redeem you. He chose to turn your heart to him. And so I want to challenge you this Christmas week to run to Scripture and be reminded of who God is, to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to stir your heart with fresh affections for God, and to pray and let's ask God to make our hearts less wandering and less fickle, and to be a people who delight in knowing Him, a people who are in awe of His grace in us. Friends, Christmas reminds us of the wonder that an all-glorious God chose to save wretched sinners like us. And I pray that this Christmas day, that will be what gives you awe and wonder and hope as well. So the king of all kings has set his affections on you and you know him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the Christmas story is the gospel story, that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners who are all bad just like us. Lord, we thank you that you've not left us lost in our sins. Lord, you would have been just to leave us in our sins and condemn us, but instead you've given us overflowing mercy and overflowing grace. Lord, I pray for myself and for these precious brothers and sisters and our friends who are with us today, that God, that you would give us such a sense of the wonder of your grace, that Lord, we could not help but thanking you for it. We could not help but talking about it this week because we're so amazed at who you are and what you have done for us. So Lord, work this in our hearts. We can't create these affections for you, and we're dependent upon you, but you can give them to us. So I pray you stir our hearts to you this day, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We're gonna fittingly close our Christmas Day service by singing in Christ alone. Let's remember not just Jesus as a baby in the manger, but the one who came to die on the cross so that we might have grace. Let's celebrate this, sing to him and worship him for who he is this morning.
on that cross as Jesus died. The wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I closing benediction today, I want us to read the text out loud together as a proclamation of what we believe about God and ourselves and why Christ came. So we'll put back up on the screen for you, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. And I want us to close out today by saying this out loud. Would you read it with me? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the Lord, that is our 
prayer this morning that you would receive honor and glory today. You deserve it all. Help us live for you this day. Find joy in you this day and find all in who you are this day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Gateway. Merry Christmas.